Welcome, my name is Amapola Ramirez and this is Chicana Moms Podcast. In this podcast, I talk to you about my life as a Chicana. As a professional, I want to share with you my knowledge. Tenemos todos un propósito en este mundo. Unidas, creamos cambio. Vamos a empezar. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Today I have a very important topic to talk to you about. I came across this book when I went to Barnes and Noble and one of the things that caught my attention was reading the title, obviously, and the book, as I picked it up, I read why our boys are struggling and what we can do about it. And it's the title called The Boy Crisis. It's by Warren Farrell and John Gray. I highly recommend this book for every mother, aunt, uh, sister, uh, teacher, any therapist, any professional that comes across and working with boys, family members who have boys in their family. And obviously everyone has at least one boy in the family um, or more because you probably have a nephew, a godson, um, a cousin that are very young, they're adolescents. And if you read this book, you would totally understand what I'm talking about. But today I want to highlight some of the things that stood out to me as a professional and as a mother. And I think that it is so important to gather so much knowledge so that we can continue to impact our world. Now, I'm a mother of two boys. I have a 16-year-old, his name is Andrew, and I have a 10-year-old, and his name is Alexander. Now, let me tell you, having boys um, is, I mean, I've never, I, I don't know what it is to have girls because I don't have girls, but I do want to highlight the fact that both of my boys going to school, um, coming home and telling me the teachers are nicer to girls than boys. I, they're seven years apart and they pretty much highlight the same thing. Girls get treated better than boys. So that was like really concerning. And I was like, what do you mean exactly? Well, if we do something and it's not, if we do something like talking in class, the teacher yells at us. But if a girl is talking in class, she doesn't yell at her, but she corrects her, but not in the way she yells at us. So I have heard that same pattern. One, I have to really share with you guys, I am an advocate for children um, at schools who have disabilities and just boys in school, or I don't just want to say boys because sometimes I'll see girls as well, where I'll attend IEP meetings and I will advocate for the special needs that they need or modifications that they need, not, the, not because they're all disabled um, or with a develop, developmental disability. But honestly, you know, it really irritates the F out of me to know that there's these professionals, so-called professional teachers, um, and I'm saying some, not all, that have an anger issue. I mean, why do you have to yell to a child? I mean, these kids are going to school wanting to learn, wanting to play with their friends at recess um, and lunch, and... Sometimes there are some teachers who are so burned out and I get it. I understand that um, 
all school districts are different and how maybe a principal takes care of their teachers and is there as a support or I don't know. There's so many things behind how the school is um, being, you know, organized and how they're being treated. What I mean is the teachers. But it really irritates me. I had to write a letter um, to a previous principal of my son's school. And I had to put in bold, I do not consent for you or the staff to yell at my child. Now, I want to share that obviously a lot of teachers, not all, a few, I, I mean, I can't really even say the amount of teachers, but I don't want to justify the fact, well, okay, you know, of course they yell at the kids. I mean, imagine you being in the classroom with 30 kids, you wouldn't even handle it. Okay, but I get it, right? We get frustrated with our own kids, but if you're there as a teacher, I know that teachers don't go to school to be a teacher to be cruel, okay? I, I understand that, but there's time that if you know as a professional, no matter what career you have, if you know you're getting burned out and you're not taking care of yourself and it's costing someone else's kid self-esteem because you chose not to take care of yourself or it could be a doctor being burned out and them not giving the primary care the right way um, and then patients pretty much end up paying the consequences. The same thing as therapists. If we don't take care of ourselves, then we're going to give like a very, um, un very disconnected, you know, approach in our patients, or I should say our clients are the ones that pay the price. So we individually as adults, responsible professionals should be able to filter the fact that, Hey, I'm really burned out. And if you find yourself as a professional, especially I'm talking here about teachers, if you're, I don't know who listens to me, if they are a teacher, if you know someone's a teacher, you know, they're really amazing teachers out there. And of course, they're human beings. They're going to get angry, frustrated, etc. But when kids see a pattern of a specific teacher, and I'm talking about these specific teachers that find themselves in this really frustrated anger vibe on a daily basis where they're yelling at the kids, they're calling them nicknames. And I've come across uh, some teachers, especially one that I can't really say what's cool or like who, but it was calling chubby kids bubble boys. Like what F and like, what is that? And that was a boy. So there's so many teachers out there that really care and then there's some that are just kind of like why well, just need a paycheck I mean you can agree and disagree with me um, and that's fine but I think that overall yes they're human beings they need to take care of themselves but if you find yourself yelling at someone else's child and you wouldn't yell at that child in front of the parent then don't do it behind the parent's back I just think that's just really disrespectful but that's what I had to do I I hear my son out. I hear them out. So if one of them ever tells me, you know, the teacher, because that's happened, the teacher humiliated me in front of the whole class. And then I see my child crying, like, what the fuck? I'm sorry for cussing, but it like, I'm not just going to stay quiet and be like, oh, you deserved it. No, no, I'm sorry. Yes. As parents, we yell to our kids because they frustrate us. But then 
we we check ourselves. I mean, that's the whole goal, right? You want to check yourself. You want to like, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. You nurture, you talk, you connect. With teachers, it, a lot of the times it's so hard to connect. Like sit down, let me get to know this specific student one-on-one for a couple of minutes. No, it, sometimes it's really hard. It really is. Um, not that I'm saying it's impossible, but sometimes it is challenging, you know, because they do have a responsibility as teachers to look out for a group of 30 kids, you know, or more. Uh, but overall, I think what I'm trying to say is there is no need to yell at kids. There is not. Honestly, imagine there's a boy that goes to school, misbehaves, and is being yelled at by the teacher, staff, lunch ladies, or receptionist. I don't know. I'm talking about like staff because they can't really like, ugh, they're just impatient with that child. And if that child has the same behavior patterns at home, imagine this poor kid being yelled at home and then being yelled at school. That is one of the saddest things. And I'm talking about boys specifically in this podcast because I am totally highlighting the fact, the importance of, you know, making sure that we understand that boys have a little harder than girls. I'm not dismissing the fact that as females, we don't struggle. Of course we do. But I'm talking on this, uh, based on this book that I came across called The Boy Crisis. And I am a mother of boys. And those mothers who have boys, you can understand um, how sometimes, obviously, it's very different. Maybe, you know, boys are more active. You know, girls can be too, but boys a little bit more active. And there are boys uh, diagnosed with ADHD more than girls. So I want to touch base on some important things from this book. And I want to just give you my perspective on my knowledge when it comes to parenting and my experiences that I've gone through with my boys or even with some clients that I've had in the past, which obviously, you know, um, I'm not going to. I'm just going to say generally, I can't give like full detail, but this is, um, I think a topic that every person who has a little boy, like who has a son, a grandson, a grand, um, godson, you know, uh, I think teachers would totally benefit from this therapists, doctors. I mean, anyone would benefit from this book. So let's get started because it's going to get good. So this is going to be part one, The Boy Crisis from the book um, written by Warren Farrell and John Gray and both have PhDs um, and came together to create this wonderful book with a lot of knowledge to understand our boys. Let's get started. Okay, so I'm going to start off by saying, um, if you haven't really realized it, anytime we look at the news and we see school violence, like shootings, have you noticed they're all boys? So our daughters are not killing, our sons are. And this is quoted by the book, The Boy Crisis. Our daughters are not killing. It's our sons. Why? Why is that happening? Why is it that there's more boys, more males 
committing crime than girls. I'm not saying girls are not, okay? But the, the number of boys or males that are out there shooting, that's telling us something in a very loud voice or loud noise, I should say. It's a loud, loud message. And I think at some point we're not understanding. So the question that I sometimes think about is like, is the main problem guns? Or is the main problem the way we're raising our boys and how our society is perceiving boys? And the things that the boys are taking. And what I mean by things, I'm taking, I'm talking about the messages you know, the labels that we're putting on boys. Like, you have to be tough. You can't cry. You can't show emotion. Only girls do that. So what is it that we are doing that's allowing a lot of these young boys? I mean, we're not allowing them, right? But what I'm saying is, like, what at some point have we said and done to make them think that they're not human enough to express themselves or to cry. Let me tell you, it's not just men who are machistas telling their sons not to cry. And not all men are machistas and not all men tell their kids not to cry. But there are mothers out there as well. Some mothers who are telling them, why are you crying? Boys don't cry. Boys don't, don't show weakness. You're going to be a man. Man up. No. That is so incorrect. We are not here to tell our boys that you need a man up at age 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Why should they man up at that age? I don't know. I was watching a video. My son was watching a football document, documentary on football and young boys, like troubled boys. And as I was watching it with him, I was talking to him and say, look, this is what happens and, and it's okay to cry, but see how angry he is. It's okay for him to say that he's sad and disappointed on himself. So it was a good way for me to teach him. But as the coaches were out there with them on the field, practicing for football, the coaches themselves were telling these young adolescents who were 15, 16 years old to man up. Like, do you guys think that's right? I don't. I really don't. These adolescent boys, obviously they're not kids and they're not adults. They're just adolescents. And they're trying to find their identity. And when a coach is telling them to man up, um, it's just pretty much telling them, you have to start acting like a man. So what, what does it look like? Like, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a man? Oh, a man is like, a man doesn't cry. Like, it depends on how the person's saying it. You can't just tell a, a young boy, you need a man up. Well, explain to them the definition of being man up because a lot of young boys who are having a difficult time in behavior and destructive and ending up in juvenile hall, a lot of the times their own fathers are not involved in their life to show them what a real man is. So how is it that they're going to know based on just a common man up? So we really need to be very careful as to how we're sending these messages. One of the other things that really stood out for me when reading this book was that our son's increased vulnerability has affected their sperm count. I had to read this paragraph like seven times because I said, okay, hold on a second. What? Why? 
So this is what it said on that little paragraph. Your son's increased vulnerability can also be detected in the change in his sperm count. Boys today have a sperm count less than half of what their grandfathers had at the same age. And the problem is getting worse. The average sperm count in the United States continues to drop 1.5% every year. So when I was reading that, I said, okay, hold on, vulnerability. Okay, vulnerability is sometimes perceived as a weakness. So in order for someone to be vulnerable, they need to step out of the comfort zone to express their thoughts and feelings exactly the way of how they feel and think. So a lot of boys, I didn't say all, but a lot of boys, okay, have a difficult time being vulnerable. And I say boys, but I'll, I'm also going to attach, uh, you know, males, like adults as well, uh, adult men. And again, not dismissing the fact that women don't go through this, but I want to just keep highlighting that as you hear me talk, I'm highlighting a lot about the boy because the topic of today is the boy crisis based on the book, okay? So if young boys and men have a difficult time being vulnerable, that means they're stuffing their emotions. They don't feel that it's the right thing to do to express that they're sad angry, afraid, um, and jealous at some extent. I mean, I'm giving these examples, but what happens when people all have a difficult time being vulnerable? So they behave based on what they think is right, and a lot of the time it is not. Being vulnerable is not weak. Being vulnerable is like me sitting here in this podcast, and which I've done, you know, getting emotional at times and expressing to you how I feel and what I think and throwing myself out there, not caring what people say about me. That's being vulnerable because it takes a lot of guts and there's a lot of people who can relate. So it's kind of like, what should I share? Should I share this? Should I share not? No, never mind. People are going to talk bad about me. And there's, you know, some of us who say, you know what, who cares? I'm going to say it. I can help someone change their life because they could probably relate. That's being vulnerable. So a lot of young boys, a lot of men have a difficult time being vulnerable. So that to me takes me um, to think that there's a lot of stress, that it's like the fight or flight approach that they deal with on a daily basis. So that takes a toll into the body physically. So I could understand how the average sperm count has dropped, okay? And again, this is what it says on the book. You could, I mean, there's times where we can agree to disagree, um, but this stood out for me and it did make sense. Now, I want to share with you something that one of my professors said when I was working on my undergrad. He said that there's two ways in which we can end poverty. One of them is to get educated and the other is to know how to establish relationships. Now, If you get educated, you know the importance of knowing something you don't know to help your life and help others. When you have relationships and you know how to have healthy relationships, you connect. And when you connect with someone and at some point you need the help of that person who you've connected for a long time, there's a high percentage 
of a chance that they'll go out of their way to help you. Have you noticed that sometimes when you don't have a job um, or someone needs a job, you're like, oh, hold on a second. I know someone that knows someone that can hook you up. We all have someone we can go to, right? And hopefully we all have someone we can go to. Now, I'm sharing this with you because one of the things that also stood out in the book was that the less formal education, the more children don't get that education, especially sons, grandsons, you know, um, nephews. If they don't have a formal education, they will suffer a long consequence in their life. And this is why. The more likely he is to feel he'll help his family live a better life by risking his own life working in my be called pretty much the death profession. So a young boy turns into a young man, gets married, and they want to be able to provide as much as possible for their kids and their wives, right? So a lot of the times it's like, well, I don't have a career, but I'll go find a job that's going to pay me more, um, and I'm going to explain to you. So this is called the death professions. So why? Okay. So to receive the death profession bonus, there are jobs like crab fishing in Alaska, okay, which is thought of the deadliest catch, working on an oil ring in a coal mine as a lumberjack, long-distance drivers of a semi-truck, um, a welder 100 feet above a bridge, as a cab, cab driver at night in an inner city, a pilot of a small plane dropping pesticides, as a roofer or as a construction worker, they all pay more money than safe environment. Similarly, low education jobs are usually what gets people to be in the jobs that I just mentioned. So in exchange for this death profession bonus, Millions of dads with less education risk their lives to give the children options they don't have. And tens of thousands of single young men try to save up enough to make themselves attractive as a future dad. This is quoted from the book and it really makes sense. So that death profession, like for example, of a, const- a construction worker is being always exposed um, to high roofs, you know, cutting material on you know a daily basis. There's people have cut their fingers, and then later on, it's really hard for them to work in construction. So it's it's really challenging. You know, we can't always say college is for everyone because there's people that just don't like it. Um, there's some that you know will succeed in other different ways, but this right here stood out. A lot, you know, I mean, we do need men to do all these jobs. I mean, maybe even as women can do it, right? But either way, it's a very risky environment, you know. I have met families where the fathers have passed away or there's fathers who have fallen from a roof and no longer can walk and are in a wheelchair. And now the family has suffered a tremendous impact financially Because, yeah, meanwhile, he was very functionable and able to work. He was bringing a lot of money in. But after that, everything changed. 
Now, we all want to look good. We all want to eat healthy. Um, we, we try our best um, to make sure that, you know, I'm going to lose a couple of pounds. And we all just want to feel good and look good, right? Now, one of the things about boys and adolescents and then young adult males is that majority of them find themselves in this situation of trying to look buff um, to attract a female, right? Not everyone, but I mean, physical attraction, obviously a lot of young boys and even girls, they say, I want to be with someone who I'm physically attracted to, right? But one of the things with boys is that as they get older, they start to see, wait a minute, girls like boys or young men who are cut up, who who are buff, right? And they try really hard to have that look. A lot of the times, some men gravitate to steroids, and that is a drug, okay? And when they gravitate to steroids, they're trying really hard at that point to really look like that buff individual that attracts girls. That is a problem. That is a problem. That can lead to depression because as we already know, we are not meant as human beings to be something we are not. So if someone is taking steroids, at some extent, I mean, that damages the mind and the body. I remember having a client a while back and he was taking steroids and the reason he came to my classes for anger management was because he was trying to get custody of his daughter, but he had an anger problem and he ended up finding out that it was all due to steroids. He admitted at times feeling depressed. He said, I love the way I looked really cut up, but I came to the realization that I can't be taking these steroids for the rest of my life. And it has really affected me uh, with my relationship, which I am no longer in because of my anger. And I just feel it's something I can't control. It's like out of my control for me to not lash out at my partner and sometimes snap at my child. So that's why I'm here. I never really thought of steroids leading to a mental um, illness, but obviously it's a drug, so it's numbing. Any type of drug, any type of, you know, like shopping, gambling, um, anything like that is numbing. Is numbing a pain? Is numbing something that we refuse to talk about? or admit in our lives, we've all at some extent been there. Now, if there is a son who doesn't get educated and eventually doesn't have a job, their percentage of success to find a partner is very low. There's a lot of females who are buying their own things. They have their own home, they have their own car, And back in the days, women would actually get married to depend on a man. And we already know that that's different now. But I have to highlight that if your son is really good looking, okay, then 
even if he doesn't have a job or an education, his percentage is a little higher, even if he doesn't have a job, okay, or an education. Because there's females who are willing to work and to support that good-looking man of theirs as long as, you know, they're, they're together. I have come across some clients that would share, you know what, when I talk about this topic, because I've shared it with my clients, they say, you're so right. I have a brother and he is good looking and his girlfriend actually is the only one that works and my brother just stays home and she doesn't care. Well, eventually, maybe, you know, she's going to get tired of it. (laughs) But if she doesn't, I guess his looks make everything worthwhile. So I'm going to end this part one of the boy crisis by reading this last section here. If grandpa wasn't educated back in the days, he would probably support his family with his muscles. But your son will enter an economy that has made a transition from muscle to mental or from muscle to microchip. Thank you so much for listening to me. Come back soon for the boy crisis part two. Take care. Bye.